Our main text this morning comes uh, again from Isaiah. We're uh, now in Isaiah 28, but we're going to go all the way to chapter 33 this morning. So it is a, a longer section. We won't read that whole thing, but, uh, but Nate will come up for us and read for us from Isaiah 33, verses 7 to 22. Uh, kind of in the climax of Isaiah 33, and what I think is the thrust of all these chapters is this statement that we will behold the king in his beauty. And so we're going to read some other texts that reflect the, the beauty of this king. We'll go to Psalm 45, which describes the beauty of God the king in just very clear and compelling ways. From there, we'll go to John 19, the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus is shown to be the king, and yet he has a beauty in that passage that's very contrary to the sort of beauty that we would normally think of. And so just look for hints in that passage of how Jesus is shown to be king with a crown of thorns on his head, a robe of purple, all these things that his beauty is very different than the beauty that the world supposes. And then lastly, We'll go to Revelation 21 and 22 to see the ultimate uh, sight of God that we will get in that final day. And so let me pray now for open eyes to understand God's word and for me to faithfully teach God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help now, for your spirit to come and for him to open our hearts to receive your word in faith. God, give us humility right now that we wouldn't Uh, stand in judgment over your word, um, assessing what we will believe, what we won't believe, but rather, Lord, that every word that we now read, God, would we receive it with hearts of faith and with hearts of joy. So give us eyes to see your word. I pray that you would strengthen me now, God, to teach your word faithfully and accurately. God, that your people may be built up. Lord, we look to you in faith for all these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 33, starting in verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highway is laid waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress, fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people. 
the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Psalm 45, 1 through 9. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteous uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. The daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. John 19, 1 through 14. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he said he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. 
Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Revelation 21, verse 22 through 25. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. In Revelation 22, verse 3 through 4, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will be worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Well, as we look at this passage of Isaiah this morning, we are moving forward a little bit in the historical timeline that Isaiah wrote in. Uh, You'll remember that at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, the major problem was that the nation of Israel, just to the north of Jerusalem, and the nation of Syria were going to team up against Jerusalem in order to get Judah on their side so that they could fight against Assyria. Well, that time has now passed, and now the main threat coming against Jerusalem is the threat of Assyria itself. And so as Isaiah speaks now to the people of Jerusalem, he's speaking to them as a people who really are terrified. They are terrified of what might happen to them when Assyria comes down and lays siege against their city. And so again, as Isaiah speaks to the people of Jerusalem, he speaks to them both words of warning and rebuke, saying that this would not be happening, Assyria would not be coming down if you had followed the Lord your God. And at the same time, he gives them words of comfort, saying that God loves you still and he has mercy planned for you still. So turn to him, turn away from all of these things that have led to this judgment that is now coming upon you and turn to the living God. And most notably, I think what the message is for us this morning is that we cannot look to God simply to solve particular problems in our lives. Just like the people of Jerusalem could not look to God simply to deliver them from Assyria and nothing more, we cannot look to God simply to solve various problems that we feel like we have. Rather, the call to us is the same as the call that Isaiah was giving to the people of Jerusalem. Namely, to turn to God as king, turn to him as Lord of all. Not to solve one or two problems in your life, but to experience total transformation of your life. And indeed, this passage paints a beautiful picture of how God can transform our lives when we submit every last aspect of our lives to him. And so that's where we are going this morning. First, I want to talk about how we cannot look to God simply as a problem solver in some discreet way, solving individual problems in our lives. Rather, we have to turn to him as king. And then second, I want to look at three ways in particular that God promises us transformation, promises us good and glorious things when we indeed submit to him as the king of all. And so, as we look at the error that the the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem in particular, was committing this morning, we do see that they were in error in how they were looking to God 
only to solve the most immediate problem of their lives, the problem that Assyria was coming down. And the way that Judah sought to solve this problem was by finding someone else on earth who would be strong enough to defeat Assyria. And so what Judah did was they turned to Egypt and they thought, well, maybe Egypt could help us. Maybe Egypt would be strong enough to protect us from Assyria. And yet one of the major themes of these chapters that we're in this morning is that Egypt is not able to save Judah from Assyria. In fact, Isaiah has nothing but scorn for Egypt. As just one example of this, you could see Isaiah chapter 30 verse 7. Isaiah said, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. Now, one meaning for the word Rahab is arrogance. So this nickname that Isaiah has for Egypt, Rahab, who sits still, is he's calling Egypt an arrogant do-nothing. We all know people who seem to brag a lot about what they're able to accomplish, the things they are able to do, and yet we also know when people brag and boast so much, and yet they're not able to actually live up to what they're talking about. Well, this was absolutely Egypt in Isaiah's day. They still talked like they were a strong and powerful nation, but the reality was they could not hold a candle to Assyria. But Judah, in their foolishness, listened to all these arrogant boasts of Egypt and thought, well, surely Egypt can save us. But Isaiah gets to the ultimate point. In Isaiah 31, verse 3, he says, The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. In other words, what Isaiah was saying is that even if Egypt were a strong nation, who would you rather be trusting in? Would you rather be trusting in God or man, flesh or spirit? Which is more powerful? This is very reminiscent of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 28, where he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, the people of Judah were looking at the Assyrians as these people who can kill the body. And they thought, well, maybe we can find some other nation who can give us physical protection. And yet what Isaiah is telling them over and over is that you need more than physical protection. You need more than physical defense. What you need is the Spirit of God on your side. What you need is God acting for you. And so Isaiah was rebuking the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, telling them not to trust in Egypt, but to trust in God alone. Now at the same time, the northern half of Israel, which had its capital in Samaria, was also under great threat from Assyria. And yet the people of Israel, the people of northern Israel, were already so far turned away from God that they basically had no hope of return. And so Isaiah begins in chapter 28 by speaking of Samaria, speaking of Ephraim. Ephraim is just another word for Samaria, or for northern Israel. And as he's speaking to them, he tells them that their time of existence, that God's patience with them has come to an end. And so if you look at chapter 30, verses 3 and 4, it says, The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Again, that's Samaria. Samaria is that proud crown 
will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty. Again, the glorious beauty of Israel was Samaria. So the the fading flower of the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. I don't know if any of you have done any gardening, but it's always exciting as a gardener to see the very first fruit ripen in your garden. And of course, there's always one or two things that get ripe before everything else. And so you're not really ready to harvest your garden yet, but you see one or two things that are ready to be eaten. And so you see those things, and instead of waiting for everything else to ripen, because then that first thing to ripen would certainly be bad, you instead just go ahead and take those one or two things and you just eat them, knowing that a better harvest is coming. Well, this is the exact comparison that Isaiah is making with northern Israel and Samaria. That the time has ripened for them. And God is not yet ready to destroy all of Israel. And yet, he is ready to destroy Samaria. And so Samaria is like, again, that first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. And so Samaria and the northern kingdom are dead to rights. Judah and those in Jerusalem are terrified that they might be in the same position. And so that's why they appeal to Egypt in order to try and escape their condition. That's why they are panicking and nervous about what the future holds. But Isaiah proclaims to them again that not only is appealing to Egypt foolish from a political and a strategic perspective, but it's also foolish from a spiritual perspective. Now again, in talking about how it's foolish for Judah to look to Egypt, Isaiah is also speaking to each of us who want to look to God or look to other earthly things to solve some problems in our lives, as if we could solve them one by one instead of turning wholeheartedly to the Lord of life. On the one level, it's a foolish decision from a spiritual perspective, simply because you are only compounding your sins when you look down to Egypt, or when you look to other earthly things to solve the problems of your life. Those other things cannot solve the problem. They only dig the problem deeper because you are not turning to the Lord. You are turning to earthly things. But on another level, it's a foolish decision because the whole reason why we experience suffering and problems in our lives in the first place, and the whole reason why Jerusalem was in danger in the first place, is precisely because of their failure to trust in God and to walk in His ways. They are looking at the most superficial apparent problem that they have. They are looking at Assyria coming down. And they are not looking at the deeper problem that made Assyria a problem in the first place. Namely, their disobedience. And beloved, this is where we ourselves so often go wrong. We, we know the problems in our lives very well that show their face day to day. Problems in our job or problems within our families or emotional problems that we have or whatever it may be. We know what those problems are and we often pray about those problems. We often look for solutions to those problems. But we don't undertake the deeper kind of investigation and heart change that needs to be done if any of these more surface level problems are ever going to be solved. And so instead, 
of looking at total submission to God, total submission to his kingship, we think, well, maybe I can solve this, and maybe I can solve this, and maybe I can solve this. And so not only is our assessment of our problem much more shallow than it needs to be, so our vision of a solution is much less glorious than it could be. To put the same problem in a different way, if the various problems of your life could be solved right now, then ask yourself this question in your heart. Would you still need God? If all the surface level problems that you can think of, any inner turmoil that you have, any family issues that you have, any work issues that you have, if those were all solved, would you still need God? I mean, if God really did show up and he resolved some of the difficulties you are presently having, what would then attract you to God beyond those things? Is there anything left? Are you just looking for God as an all-powerful solution giver to your problems? Or are you looking to him on a very different plane? Are you saying to God, God, I know that you control all things and I know that what I am experiencing as problems in my life right now is just the tip of the iceberg of the problems in my own heart and the brokenness of this world. And so I pray that you will not only erase my problems that I see today, but do so much more than all I can ask or think. I know that what I see is so much smaller than what you see. I spoke last week of having an open versus a closed mindset. And this question here is very similar to this. Beloved, do you think it's possible for God to change and improve your lives in ways beyond your own conception, beyond what you could dream? Or is your only expectation for God that you get through this day or that this problem is solved? Beloved, if that's your only expectation, then your God is too small and you are not submitting to him in a wholehearted way. You see, God indeed has a positive vision for our lives. He does want to solve the problems in our lives, but God's vision for our lives is so much bigger and so much more positive and more glorious than anything that we ourselves could possibly conceive. If we were just to think of God in light of our current problems today. And yet so often we get fixated on particular sins that we commit that we want to stop committing, particular people that keep bothering us that we just wish would stop bothering us. And again, this is what Jerusalem was doing with Assyria. If only Assyria would go away, then we would be all right. Then we don't even need God anymore because our problem is taken care of. And of course, it's true that the people of Jerusalem would be a lot safer and happier and healthier if Assyria were not going to come down and lay siege upon them. But in a way, even this judgment itself, even the siege itself is a severe mercy from God because it's meant to lead them back to God. But for the people of Jerusalem, instead of driving them to God, it was driving them down to Egypt. It was driving them to other idols of human accomplishment and human wisdom. And so the trouble that the Assyrians posed revealed the deeper workings of their heart. You see, if the people of Jerusalem had truly repented, if their kings and priests and prophets had truly repented, then they would have recognized that in a sense, Assyria was the least of their problems. 
And that their deeper problem for which they were suffering in a much greater way was their disobedience to God. Their lack of wholehearted submission to Him. Now God made clear through Isaiah that if they had turned to Him in repentance, then He would have delivered them from Assyria. That would have been thrown in. But even more than that, they would have had much greater rewards. Rewards that you can only get by looking to God as the absolute ruler, the absolute authority, the absolute king of your life. You see, there's fundamentally two ways that we as humans can be motivated to do anything. That way is through pleasure, through a lure, or through pain, through threat of punishment. And so what Isaiah was speaking to the people of Judah, to the people of Jerusalem, was both of these things. Trying to motivate them to see that all that God had for them, all that he offered, Isaiah was putting before them the enormous reward that they could receive if they would turn to God with their whole hearts. And at the same time, if the reward wasn't enough, then Isaiah was also putting before them the pain that happens when we turn away from God. And so if there's any behavior you're trying to change in your life, if there's anything that you're trying to do, then you can always think of it in these terms. What is the thing that scares me? What is the pain that I am trying to avoid? And on the other hand, what is the great reward that I am trying to attain? And sometimes people will try things like setting up some extrinsic reward, you know, like they get to go on some trip if they make some change, or some extrinsic pain, like they'll have to pay some money to somebody or something like that if they fail to do what they want to do. But more significant than that that we should see, and that Isaiah lays before the people of Jerusalem here, is the glory and the beauty intrinsic in turning to God. The very reward of knowing God himself. And at the same time, the pain of not knowing him, the fear that comes when we do not know him. And so Isaiah was setting before the people of Jerusalem both the glory of knowing God, the great reward that there is in submitting to him as Lord of all, and at the same time, the great pain that exists if we live only in our own wisdom and for our own strength. And so for the rest of this message, what I want to look at is three things in particular. Things that on the one hand are punishments from God, are reasons why we should fear turning away from God. And yet on the other hand, things that also promise great reward when we do come to God. If we can see the beauty that exists in turning away from the works of darkness, away from the works of death and turning to the living God, then, beloved, we will have the fuel that we need day by day to serve God as we ought. And no longer will we just look to God to solve these particular little problems in our lives. Rather, we will have a vision for all that God has for us if we turn to him with our whole heart. And so let me begin by looking at three consequences or punishments that come from not living completely in God's ways. Now, in these chapters of Isaiah, I want to fit what Isaiah says under three main headings for the punishment that was going to come. The first main punishment that comes from not following God is that you live a life in fear. You live afraid. You live in terror. Or another way 
that Isaiah talks about it in these chapters is that you live in haste. That is, you're always wondering what's going to come and get you. And so you always feel like you have to be ready to go, ready to flee. Second, I want to look at how a life lived away from God means a life that's like a barren and fruitless desert. And then lastly, I want to look at how a life lived away from God is like being blind or deaf or even being foolish or being drunk. These are the three main headings that Isaiah uses to try and persuade the people of Jerusalem away from following their own designs and to follow the living God. So first of all, we see that one of God's judgments for people that do not live in his ways is to be afraid, to live in fear, to live in terror or in haste. You can see this initially in chapter 28, verses 18 to 22. It says, then your covenant with death will be annulled. Now, when Isaiah says your covenant with death, he's talking in a sarcastic way. He's talking about their covenant with Egypt, the people who they think are going to save them. And so he's saying your covenant with death, your covenant with Egypt will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you for morning by morning. It will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work alien in his work. Now there in verse 21, where Isaiah talks about Mount Perizim in the valley of Gibeon, those were times where God fought for his people, defended his people against their enemies. And yet he's saying that strange is this work because now God is going to do battle against his people. And then closing with verse 22, now therefore do not scoff lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against this whole land. And so here in these verses, how what Isaiah is telling the people is that they will live in fear, especially in verse 19, it says, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. And then this wonderful image in verses 20 and 21 about the bed being too short to stretch oneself on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in, that this is what life will be like. You're not able to lay down and get comfortable. Your bed is too short. You're not able to get warm. Your blanket is too small. Again, it's just another image of this idea of living in fear, living uncomfortably, living in terror. This is what life is like when you don't have a rock like the Lord to trust in. Or go down to chapter 30, starting in verse 9. It says, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who says to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So there you hear the wickedness of the people, how they only want to hear good things from their prophets. But this is how the Lord responds in verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, 
Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain like a signal on a hill. And so here in those closing verses, how the mentality of those in Jerusalem is that we're going to flee, we're going to run away upon horses, upon swift steeds. And yet God says that even when you do that, your pursuers will be swift. And even if you have fast horses at the threat of only one, you will be frightened. You see, this is the sort of life we have apart from God, a life of constant fear, a life of feeling like we always have to work, we always have to flee, we always have to sort things out for ourselves. It is not a life of peace. And then going back to verse 13 and the image that Isaiah gives there, it says that this iniquity is like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. Beloved, a a wall was the thing that was meant to defend a city. A wall is what was meant to make you feel safe inside your city. And imagine being inside a city when people are attacking it and suddenly in your wall, you see it bulging out and about to collapse. You see a weak point in the wall and you know that it is only a matter of time before it falls. Again, beloved, this is what is going on in the heart's of so many of us as we turn away from God and in the hearts of so many who do not know God outside of this church. It's like they can see the fractures in the wall. They see it's about to collapse. They know the danger is about to come. And the only recourse that they know of, the only solution they have in mind is, I better figure this out. There must be something I can do. There must be enough money that I can save up. There must be a solution that I can work out. And so they live a life of fear, of terror, of constant anxiety, just wondering when is this wall going to collapse? When are these pursuers going to catch up with me? And then lastly, under this theme, I want to look at Isaiah 33, verses 13 and 14. He says, Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Beloved, this is talking in particular about the people who are closer to the Lord, about the people in Jerusalem. The sinners in Zion. In other words, the sinners who are in the presence of God because Zion is where God lives. And it says, Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? 
Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? In chapter 32 of Isaiah, Isaiah calls the city of Jerusalem Ariel. Ariel means the space around an altar. It is where offerings were brought in order to be burned up. And so God is talking about Zion like it is his altar. It is a place where offerings are consumed. And because it is an altar, because it is a place where offerings are consumed, it must be a place that is holy, a place that is set apart for God. And so those who are living in Zion, who are godless, who are unrighteous, have this mentality, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? The consuming fire is God himself. It is the fire being burned upon the altar. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And so, beloved, we have a special agony if we are within the church and yet we are disobedient to God because we feel the nearness to God. We know His righteousness. We know the goodness of His ways. And yet, if we continually violate our consciences and do not submit to Him, do not live according to His ways, then we have this sense of terror that how can I live in the midst of this consuming fire? How can I dwell with these everlasting burnings? And so I exhort you especially, beloved, who are here gathered as a church to commit yourselves fully to the Lord and to not allow your sin to give you this constant sense of terror that God is a consuming fire. There are everlasting burnings for those who disobey. Rather, turn to him with your whole heart and escape terror, escape fear. So that's the first way that we see it is a terrifying thing to turn away from God. The second thing that we see in these chapters is that if you turn away from God, it is also like being a barren and fruitless desert. We see this first in chapter 28. So chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. Look especially at the first half of verse 4 there. The fading flower of its glorious beauty. The fading flower of its glorious beauty. Beauty. If we have any type of beauty or glory on this earth, the longer we persist in turning away from God, the more we fade away like a, fla- like a flower fades after it blooms. But I think this theme becomes most clear when we go to chapter 32. So go to chapter 32, verses 12 to 14. He says, Beat your breast for the pleasant fields for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. So notice at the beginning in verse 12, it talks about God's people like a pleasant field, like a fruitful vine. Okay, so it's a it's a beautiful place. It's like a nice vineyard or a, a healthy farm. But then in verse 13, it starts to change. For the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. So this thing that used to be a fruitful vine and pleasant fields now is only yielding thorns 
and briars. Again, is becoming barren and fruitless like a desert. But then in verse 14, Isaiah goes on to describe this life even more. The palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens. The joy of wild donkeys. And so when we turn away from the living God, another thing we find is that we see that our lives are being less effective, less beneficial to others. We're bearing less fruit. We're not doing as good in terms of serving our family or serving our employers. Rather, we become so self-centered and inward focused that we stop doing anything good for others and we become like a barren and fruitless desert. And then lastly, Isaiah says that when we turn away from God, it's like living a life in the midst of blindness. It's like living a life of drunkenness where you don't really have your senses about you. And so again, going to Isaiah 28, verses 7 and 8, it says, These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Again, this is what life can become. When you turn away from the living God, this is what, what we must run away from. It's like a life where we no longer have our common sense. We are no longer able to make wise judgments. Again, as verse 7 says, they reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment because they have turned away from God and they are overwhelmed with this dizziness that's caused by wine and strong drink. And then we see this even more clearly in chapter 29, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. You see, the longer that people persist and disobeying God, the further away they go from God's ways, God's design and creation, and in His Word, the more dark their mind becomes, the more blind their eyes become, the worse and worse their judgment becomes. And so again, we flee this sort of drunkenness, this sort of blindness, where we can no longer see right from wrong, up from down, and instead we hope in the Lord. And so now, in closing, what I want to look at is the reverse of these three things. How is it that God really does promise hope and transformation if we will submit to him as king? Do we just have to submit because he is king and he has authority? Or are there actually appealing things that God holds out for us, a life in his ways? And again, beloved, I think that as much as there may be terror in these first three things that are named, as much as there may be terror and being a barren, fruitless desert or in not having discernment or judgment or of always living in terror, there is great reward on the opposite side. And so the first great reward, the opposite of living in terror, of fleeing at every last thing you see, the opposite of this is a life of rest. And this is probably the biggest theme that Isaiah has in these chapters is the rest that God provides for those who trust in him. 
So starting in 28 verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Whoever believes will not be in haste. That is, whoever believes will never know this terror of having to run away at the first sight of an enemy. And why will they not be in haste? Again, as verse 16 says, because a stone has been laid in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we realize that this is speaking of Christ Jesus himself, who is that foundation stone, that tested stone, so that when we trust in him, we never need to fear anymore. Because we know that we are secure in him. We are not in haste. We are not terrified. We are not in fear. We trust what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But this is just the beginning of Isaiah's promises in terms of the rest that can be won as we turn to God. If you look at Isaiah 33 verse 20. It says, Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feast, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. This is the opposite of the image of that wall that is cracked and about to fall apart. It says that Jerusalem, that Zion, will be an untroubled habitation immovable tent, that there will never be anything that can assail this city. And again, if we connect this with Isaiah 28, 16, why will nothing ever assail the city? Why is it secure? Because there is the foundation stone of Jesus Christ. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ that we find our security and our safety, that we find our freedom from fear and from terror. But just to hear some more of this beautiful picture that Isaiah paints of the rest that God provides. So going to chapter 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Then jumping down to verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. So how is it that we can have this rest? How how can we have this quietness and this trust? Beloved, it's because we have a God who waits to be gracious to us. Who exalts himself to show mercy to us. Therefore, we can wait for him. And again, we know very clearly just how gracious and how loving God is because he has sent his son to die for us so that we can escape the terror. Jesus himself experienced the terror and the insecurity of life upon that cross so that as we trust in him, now we can know rest and we can know peace. Hear this other beautiful image that Isaiah gives in 31.5. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Beloved, have you ever considered how God can be like a bird 
hovering over you to protect you, to keep you safe. Again, this is the God that we come to know in Jesus Christ. He is one who hovers over us to protect us. And if we have such a God, then how can we live in fear? Isaiah 33, 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap that is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. How do we escape the fear of these earthly things? How do we escape a life of terror, a life of anxiety? Well, it's by understanding the fear of the Lord. Understanding how much greater he is, how much more powerful he is, and how he himself watches over us. Beloved, if you know how the Lord has sheltered you in Christ Jesus, if you know that he is only for you, that he will never be against you, then you never have any reason to fear or to be anxious. And so the Lord gives us perfect rest. But second, the Lord gives us fruitfulness. So we're not a barren desert anymore, but we bear enormous fruit. And Isaiah gives beautiful picture of this in two different sections of these chapters. First in Isaiah 29, verses 17 to 19. It says, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So we see that the fruitfulness that we can have in God, in Jesus Christ, is first of all this fruitfulness in joy. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So there is this inward joy that we have that is part of the fruitfulness that God promises. And the image that Isaiah gives is given us in verse 19. Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. Now in Isaiah's day, Lebanon was known as simply a forest, a wilderness. It was indeed a place that was bountiful, but it was not a cultivated place. It was, it was uncultivated. And so it says that Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. So the wild place that does not know any kind of fruitfulness right now will be turned into this well-kept field, a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. So meaning that the places right now that we think of as being fruitful and wonderful, in the days to come, people will actually think that they're not. They're a forest compared to the fruit that is born right now. And when will this happen? Well, for that, we need to go to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, verse 15, and then verses 21 and 22. It says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So this is how we bear fruit, beloved. The Spirit is poured out upon us. The Spirit is poured out from on high. And when the Spirit does that, We who once were this barren wasteland, we become a fruitful field. 
We become such a fruitful field that all of those who were considered fruitful in the Old Testament, all those who were considered fruitful before the time of Christ, they are deemed a forest in comparison to what God is doing now through us by His Spirit. Again, this comes from God Himself. It comes from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by which God's Spirit was purchased for us. Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 32 make most plain where this comes from. There the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams. So it is in the presence of the Lord Himself, the Lord in majesty. He is the place of broad rivers and streams. He Himself is the way that we become fruitful. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. When we submit to the Lord completely, when he becomes our king, our lawgiver, our judge, then we can become a fruitful field. And so, lastly, this is Isaiah's climax, that we will actually behold the king in his beauty. Isaiah 33, verse 17, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. So we will not be like drunken people. We will not be like people who have no wisdom to discern right from wrong. Rather, we will see the very glorious one, the king in his beauty, the one who is the hope of all the earth. This same message is spoken in chapter 30, verse 20. It says, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes shall see your teacher. Beloved, this must be the greatest reward of our hearts, that our eyes will see the king and his beauty. Our eyes will see our teacher. That when we see God in that way, then all of a sudden we realize how we do indeed have nothing to fear. How we indeed can be a fruitful and productive people and not a barren wasteland. And for all these reasons, we can turn to God, not as simply a God who can solve this problem or that problem, but a God who wants to give us perfect rest, who wants to give us perfect fruit, who wants us to behold God himself, the most beautiful being in all of creation. Isaiah prophesies that the days will come, the days that we are living in today, when we will truly be able to see the Lord. And we will be able to see the Lord because we have received forgiveness and sanctification. Isaiah 29, verses 22 to 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, They will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Beloved, God has done this work in our hearts. We now receive instruction. We have come to understanding because of the great work that God has done through Christ upon his cross. And therefore, we glorify the Lord as we see him. We magnify him. We sanctify 
his name. And so, beloved, I invite you this morning, no matter what struggle you are facing in your life, no matter what problem you yourself think right now you want God to solve, think much bigger than that. Behold the beautiful plans that God has for those who trust in him, for those who turn to him wholeheartedly as king, that they will be a fruitful field, that they will have rest for their souls, and they will behold the king in all of his beauty. My prayer is that you will not know any more terror or fear, but you will know peace and rest as you turn to the God of life. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we don't deserve any of your kindness, Lord, you nevertheless sent your Son in order to bear our punishment, in order to bear the ways that we have rejected you, so that we can now enter into your presence and do a beautiful vision of who you are, so that we can now be a fruitful field and escape fear. God, we love you and we bless your name. And God, I ask that you would turn each of our hearts increasingly towards you. Lord, that we won't see you as a solver of this problem or that problem, but that we'll see the great hope that you've offered to us and that we'll turn to you with all of our hearts and with all of our souls. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.